Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us from Santa Barbara, California is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with you. Brandon, always good to be with you. How are you and the kids doing? We're doing great. Uh, little Gilbert, our sixth child, just started walking, which has add, added another dose of chaos to our already chaotic home. <laughs> you have imperial walkers all through your house. Huh? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Hey, you and I were just together a couple weeks ago in Dallas, Texas. The, the main reason we were there was to open up the new office of the Word on Fire Institute, which yeah. I want to talk about in a second. But the, the first morning that we were there, you and I made a little excursion to the site of the President John F. Kennedy assassination. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Why have you been interested in this event and what was the experience like going there to visit it? Yeah, I mean, since I was a teenager, probably in the, in the mid-70s, when a lot of the books about Kennedy assassination theories came out, I, I sort of got obsessed with all that, read those books. And so I knew all about Dealey Plaza and the Grassy Knoll and the school book depository and where the shooters were positioned according to your, you know, conspiracy theory. And some years ago, I'd been to the site, to Dealey Plaza, but it was my first opportunity to see the famous museum on the sixth floor where where Oswald had situated himself. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm kind of a history buff, American history. My family was always very interested in the Kennedys. So, um, you know, I found that fascinating. All right. So what's your theory? One shooter, two shooters, big conspiracy. How do you read the whole thing? Well, I, I guess when push comes to shove, I would say I think the one shooter, Oswald acting alone, is the most plausible. Uh, that's based on having read a lot of different you know, takes. I think you and I both had the experience, though, when we were up there on the sixth floor and you're basically at the spot where Oswald was. It, it's a difficult shot. I mean, I'm no marksman. I'm no expert in, in uh using a rifle, but it seemed like a pretty difficult shot. Uh, but I think the evidence, the best evidence indicates uh, the one shooter is probably the most plausible theory. So that was a little macabre start to the day. But then uh, <laughs> yeah. right after that, we went back to the new Word on Fire Institute office there in Dallas. That's spearheaded by Jared Zimmerer, the director of the Word on Fire Institute. We now have several uh, employees working out of that office. What was it like to see... Mm -hmm. This institute, which just a year or so ago was just a dream, just an abstract idea, now taking yeah. physical root in an actual office in Dallas. It was thrilling. I, I love the office. It's right near uh, the airport, and you see this beautiful kind of Texas uh, scene out the window. It's a very airy place, very uh, bright, um, uh, very nicely uh, you know, decorated with some of the photography we've taken from our film trips around the world. So, no, I was thrilled. And you're right, Brandon. It was kind of a valeity. It was just a general idea we had only a short time ago to uh, set up this institute, which is meant to form an army of evangelizers. And then I remember the day uh, when Father Steve and I here in Santa Barbara called Jared Zimmer to invite him to be the director of the institute. And we didn't know if he'd say yes or no. So to see Jared there, you know, running this now very much incarnated office uh, was was a thrill. And I, I hope it is there for a long time and, and bodes well for our institute. I think the descriptor army is quite accurate. We just crossed 5,000 members of the Word on Fire Institute. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, you're not a part of the institute yet, go to wordonfire.institute. We've got tons of great courses, a, a bubbling community with lots of interesting Catholics from all over the world. So check it out. Sign up. Join the movement. Word on Fire 
Institute. You know what surprised me, Brandon? I, I didn't even know this till Jared told me the number of countries represented by Institute members. And what is it? It was extraordinary. Like it, dozens and dozens of, of foreign countries. I think that's right. Yeah. And so that was exciting. And that's right. We want to build something that really stretches across the country and even around the world. Well, right before the uh, visit to the Dallas office, you were in Baltimore along with all of your other brother bishops for one of your big gatherings of the USCCB, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And it's a couple days full of, of meetings and administrative items. Of course, for this gathering, the main focus was on the sexual abuse crisis and on policies and procedures you guys as bishops are are strengthening and putting into place. So I think that occupied a lot of the discussions there. But also each of the heads of the, excuse me, each of the committees of which you are one of them were invited to give sort of an update on what your committee has been working on. And so you gave, uh, I think, a five, 10 minute presentation on your committee on evangelization and catechesis. It's received a lot of buzz and commentary around the Catholic online world, especially. It was live stream, so anybody could could watch it. And so for this episode, I wanted to walk through some of the things you discussed and then address some of the some of the comments and questions that you've been getting about that presentation. Um, so first, I guess, tell us a little bit about this committee. We've mentioned it a few times here on the podcast, but give us the overview of what this committee is. What do you do? What's the point of it? Yeah, I'm a chair of the uh, Committee on uh, Evangelization and Catechesis, one of the major committees of the USCCB. The purpose of it is to help the bishops in this particular area of concern. So as they do their work of evangelizing and catechizing, uh, can we be of assistance to them? So I took over about a year and a half ago as chair. And since that time, I've drawn in a number of people, including yourself, uh, to talk about this issue of the nuns or the unaffiliated. Because I just said, when I started, I mean, look, this I think is now it's the number two issue facing us. But I've, I've been saying it's certainly one of the most important issues facing us as a church. So I brought um, a number of experts in. And as a committee, we began really thinking through this issue carefully. Well, then we petitioned for time. And actually, Brandon, what you said isn't quite right, because not all the committees reported. It was it was uh, ours was the only one that made that kind of report to the general uh, body. Because we had asked for that time and that permission. So they gave us just that little bit of time, followed up by Q&A. So as you say, I made a, a brief presentation on who are the nuns, why are they leaving, and how do we – not so much how do we get them back. I just did what are some signs of hope around this. And then it was followed by, as you say, a, a really wonderful, lively uh, exchange with the bishop. So – we went on, I think, for a solid 45 minutes at least, you know, bishops raising, um, you know, concerns and asking further questions and, and wanting greater clarification and uh, making observations. So it was a really, I thought, wonderful exchange. And then the response I got from the bishops afterwards was uh, was overwhelming. It was just very positive. In fact, they've asked, and this is not for sure yet, we're going to petition, they, they want us to do another presentation in November with all of the experts so we can really have a chance to engage the uh, the body of bishops. So anyway, it was a, it was a great uh, it was a great moment. 
I want to dive more into some of those reactions and some of the next steps for your committee in a second. But first, let's walk through the the little presentation yeah. update that you gave. So you mentioned it was in three parts. Who are the nuns? Why are they leaving? And then you concluded with some signs of hope so that it wasn't just a total downer. Yeah. Um, so first of all, who are the nuns? You cited some statistics. Maybe talk a little bit about those. Yeah. And probably those who, um, you know, have been following our podcast have heard me talk about this. You've talked about them before too. Um, you know, for every one person joining our church, six are leaving or 6.45, I think it is. I shared that. That always gets the attention of, of Catholic audiences. Uh, the fact that, um, in our country generally, fully 25% now identify as unaffiliated. But among younger people, it's much worse, 40% in the general population, but among Catholics, fully 50%. So I laid out some of those, you're right, sobering, uh, depressing statistics. And, you know, you're a bishop, you're you're in the evangelization business. <laughs> you know, finally, what we're all about is bringing people to the church and to Christ. And so, you know, those are, are tough numbers to hear. Um, now, the second part, why are they leaving? And I made the observation that everyone seems to have an opinion about this. You know, we're not shy about sharing our opinions. But what I wanted to do was share some of the objectivity that I, I said there have been tons and tons of surveys now. We could fill library shelves with the surveys of young people where we've asked them, so I said, we should imitate Pope Francis here and say, well, let's actually listen to what young people are saying. And there I laid out, you know, that, that uh, time and again, the dominant reasons given are that we no longer believe. We no longer find credible the claims of the church, often coupled with concerns about science, that the faith seems out of step with science. I talked, too, about... Um, cultural relativism giving rise to this culture of self-invention, right? So if, if I decide who I am, I decide what the truth is, uh, the church's pretension to speak objectively for the true and the good seems uh, highly problematic to a lot of young people. Now, specify it, I further said, around specific issues, especially with younger um, unaffiliated, the gender issues and, and the, the gay issues, you know. Anyway, I laid all that out. I mentioned a few other things too. Um, but that was the second move in the talk. You know, one thing, Bishop, that we at Word on Fire sometimes re receive criticism about <clears throat> is that we focus too much on intellectual issues and that, you know, we need to sort of focus on the more emotional reasons, the cultural reasons, the communal reasons why people drift away from the church. But to your earlier point, w when surveyors ask, thousands of young people why they've left. In every survey I've seen, some version of that mm -hmm. answer appears number one. Yeah. Either I no longer believe or I don't find it credible or you know I don't see the, the importance or reason of being Catholic or Christian. Um, why, why do you think we've so dropped the ball on helping people believe in our basic teachings? Well, that's another question. You know, I, I was thinking the, the first question is, why do we have such a knee-jerk anti-intellectualism. I mean, I fought it all my adult life. I fought it all my years in the church. Uh, the assumption that, well, that can never be the real thing people are concerned about. That might be the, you know, what they present, but what they're really concerned about is now fill in the blank, you know. Um, in terms of pastoral ministry, uh, the years I was coming of age in the seminary and my early years of the priesthood, we always devalued the intellectual as though that's not nearly as important. It's, you know, reaching out to young people. It's, it's, uh, 
you know, moving into their lives, et cetera. All of which is important. I mean, I'm not denying it for one moment, but we've oddly, it seems to me, oddly uh, cast aside these intellectual concerns when in fact, I'm not doing it for my health. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at the objective surveys. That's what the young people say. We don't believe this, this uh, operation. We don't find it credible. Okay, I don't care how you slice that. That's an intellectual uh, dilemma. That's an intellectual issue that has to be addressed in a smart way. Um, so again, I, I'm not doing it just because I, I you know, feel feel strongly about it. I'm, I'm looking at the objective data. You mentioned in that section of your talk, why are they leaving four different reasons? We've talked here about the first one, that they no longer yeah. believe in God or the church's teachings. You, men- you mentioned a second ago relativism being a big mm-hmm. uh, issue, and you quoted from Dr. Christian Smith. Christian Smith yeah. is one of the experts you brought in to present to your committee. Yeah. He's probably the premier Catholic sociologist on this issue of the unaffiliated. And there's one line that Christian Smith gave the committee. He said, young people are uneasy with strong statements made regarding theology. Consequently, very few, if any, general statements can or should be made about God, faith, or morality. Mm -hmm. The way I read that is it's not even that young people are upset with the specific claims that Catholicism make. It's that they don't even think you can make any definitive claims about God or the church. Is that your experience working with young people? Absolutely. Even though we make definitive claims all the time about sciences, we have no quarrel with that whatsoever. We make all kinds of definitive claims about it. But somehow a religious claim strikes a lot of people today as inherently judgmental, right? That if I say, well, here's the right way to think about some metaphysical matter, here's the right way to behave, it's almost ipso facto, given the, the parameters of the conversation today, seen as something judgmental, um, that we we don't honor the distinction between loving someone and disagreeing with what they say. It, you know, it's that we just conflated those two things. So if you love someone, then you must affirm any and all decisions that person makes, right? And concomitantly, if you disagree with a, a position that someone takes, you hate that person, you know, and it's it's the the conflation of all that. It's the failure to make that distinction that's led to a lot of mischief. It seems to me. That's why you know I think last time we talked about this is the whole hate speech uh, category. Now, grant you, there, sure, there's hate speech. Uh, Hitler engaged in it. I mean, I get hate speech, but today we tend to say any time I'm disagreeing with a position that you're taking, I'm ipso facting facto engaging in hate speech. Uh, so I think that's part of the problem is that we we just can't abide an objective religious claim. We just think automatically that's a judgmental claim or a claim that involves my my hatred or exclusion of somebody. So it, it's a lot of murky thinking around those themes. Well, that dovetails into the third major reason why young people leave in your presentation, which was the culture of self-invention. And so if Christianity tells people that God made you a specific way for a specific purpose, but our culture says, actually, it's up to you to define who you are and what you believe, I think we run into trouble in that when people then take their ideas and beliefs and wind them into their own personal identity. That's part of the whole self-invention package. And so if you disagree with what I believe, you're disagreeing with this self that I've invented. Right. Um, Why do you think the culture of self-invention poses a serious problem to evangelization? 
Oh, it's the it's in some ways the most serious problem because you know the the biblical view, and it's it also dovetails with a classical philosophical view too, is that there are certain truths, intellectual and moral truths, that define us, and that we find our authentic freedom and our authentic uh, flourishing by submitting ourselves to those truths or aligning ourselves to them. Um, when you shift that around, and it's you know it's it's a form of the Gnostic problem. That's another big. A theme we could develop, but the infinite plasticity of, of humanity as though I'm just a, a, a project of self-creation. It's all a matter of my will. And they're thinking that old problem. You trace it back to someone like Nietzsche, but way before Nietzsche, the problem of what we call voluntarism is the trumping of intellect by will, that will has the primary role to play. Well, then a truth claim is, a, is an affront to my will. It's a limitation on my will. Or in our language today, it's probably it's an insult to my uh, freedom. See, see, that's where all of that murkiness has led to a lot of these difficulties, where authentic freedom, authentic flourishing, and sense of self follows from an acceptance of these basic intellectual and moral truths and an alignment of my life to them. I've often used those examples, probably hackneyed by now, but. Of, of learning the sports or learning to play a musical instrument. No one thinks you just go out there and do whatever you want. You know, here's a guitar, do whatever you want. Uh, no, it's, it's by entering into the, the objectivity of music and of that particular instrument that, that you become free and joyful and adept at playing it, right? Or you enter into the objectivities of baseball. You don't make up the game as you go along. Well, then why do we think when it comes to the spiritual and moral life, uh, those rules don't obtain? Now suddenly, oh, no, just make it up as you go along. The church stands for something very different. And that's why it's seen quite properly by a lot of people today as the supreme enemy. That The church is what stands for for um, the alternate view of things. And that's, that's why evangelization becomes so difficult. Hey, I, I want to announce to you Jesus Christ, Son of God incarnate, crucified and risen from the dead. And in in subjection to him, you're going to find the fullness of life. You see how that, that runs counter to every instinct of self-invention ideology. All right. The fourth reason you gave for why young people are leaving religion and becoming unaffiliated is because they see faith as illogical or unscientific. We, we've talked about this many, many yeah. times over many, many episodes, but do you want to say something briefly about that? Yeah, well, just it's often uh, uh, coupled with the, the opening uh, observation, you know, that, that faith is, uh, it's irrational. I, I can't believe this. And the criterion of reasonableness for a lot of, especially young people today, is science or are the physical sciences. To be in accord with the physical sciences, that is what it means to be true. If you're out of step with the physical sciences, you're, it's fantasy or it's mythology or it's, or it's a nice story, you know. Um, part of the problem there, Brandon, and I've talked about it before with you, is introducing modes of knowing that give us access to real truth, objective truth, but are not scientific modes of knowing. That's why, you know, the, the great stress on the STEM stuff today, whether it's science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Great. Great. I love all of them. My nephew, who's a rising junior at MIT, visited me here last night, you know, working on driverless cars. I mean, great kid. Let's talk about Mr. STEM, you know. But I was delighted because 
he also loves history. He also loves biography also. And I began to kind of tease in the direction of, of philosophical issues on the edge of, of, you know, the sciences. Good, good. Let's, there's, there's a whole world out there beyond just the narrow scientific view of things. But uh, for a lot of young people, science equals rationality. Religion's not science. Therefore, religion's irrational. See? We have to overcome that problem. Let's pause here before we get to the signs of hope. And I just want to ask, in your experience with all the other bishops around the country, how do you think all of the things you just said resonate with them? Are they seeing the same problems? Do they think it's as significant as you do? My experience dealing, whether it's on our own committee um, or with the wider body of bishops, they immediately get it. They immediately get it. They say, yes, I understand that. Maybe they haven't thought about it in that pointed way. But once you bring these themes up, yes, in my experience, they get it. Okay, so then let's move to the final part of your presentation. This is the one that got the most commentary and the most buzz. Um, It was titled Signs of Hope. And so in light of all these dire statistics, trends, answers they're giving in the surveys, where can we what can we hang our hat on? What's you know, where are the signs of hope for the future? The first one you gave came from Dr. Christian Smith's research. And you noted that few nuns are anti-religious. Say something about that. Yeah, and he's insisted on that. And I think that's right. I mean, I run into a lot of ferocious atheists on my internet ministry, and that's probably typical because you get a lot of extreme stuff there. But I think he's right that most people who have abandoned religion, maybe they've, they've drifted away more than stormed away. They've kind of uh, drifted to the margins of it. And therefore, you know, maybe we can we can draw them back. And they're not ferociously anti-religious. They're more either indifferent to it or they become bored with it. And so that in itself is a sign of hope, that we're not in a desperate twilight struggle against, you know, militant atheism among the young, but something a little bit softer, therefore easier to deal with. Another sign you lifted up was the great fruitful work done on college campuses by Catholic campus ministry organizations like Focus and St. Paul's Outreach and Newman Centers. Why is that such a sign of hope? Well, because it's it's happening. You know, they're actually in the in the uh, trenches there with the nuns, with the unaffiliated, and they're finding a way to reengage them. I've watched Focus missionaries all over the country. I've come to know a lot of them and to see their strategy and to see the effectiveness of what they're doing, their own deep enthusiasm for the faith, which is contagious, you know, and their approach, I think, is really a a good one. It's not aggressive. It's not a proselytizing approach. Um, And I think that's very hopeful. Just listen to them. Listen to some of the focus missionaries, those working on campuses. And there are ways to draw young people back. So that's that's a good thing. The third sign of hope that you gave was that there's a lot of engagement specifically online on the internet about religion. That at this time when so many people are leaving the church, there's still a lot of people talking a lot about religion. Why is that such a good thing? Well, it's great. And it's that's, you know, you and I both know that being involved in the uh, internet world, all you got to do is put something up about religion or about atheism and people come out of the woodwork, you know, to talk now Maybe they might be yelling at you or they might be angry or whatever, but at least they're interested, you know? And I think I – did I make reference in the talk? I think I did to the uh, my experience on Reddit, right, when we had the Reddit AMA. That was the funny exchange with the bishop. He said, what What did oh, you yeah. say, Reddit? <laughs> yeah. And you said, no, Reddit. Reddit? No, Reddit. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's right. Reddit? <laughs> uh, for some of the older bishops especially, that's kind of a different world. But, you know, the very fact that I was on – what was it, like an hour and 20 minutes or something – and we got 
I think it was 12,000 comments. It was the third highest of anyone in the year. Well, I mean, say what you want about that. I don't think it signals that people are uninterested in religion. And I've often teased my my aggressive atheist interlocutors, you know, when they come back again and again. I said, you know, if you really thought I was just trading in complete nonsense, I mean, you wouldn't bother. If there was someone claiming like, I think there's a colony of penguins living on Jupiter, I mean, I would just, you know, I'd just write them off as a lunatic and ignore them, right? But the fact that people come back over and over and over again, I think shows, you know, I, I would name it as the hungry heart, the, the natural desire for God that's in everybody. And I think that's a, a great sign of hope and that we found a way through God's providence, through the social media to engage people like that. I think that's very hopeful. All right. The fourth and final sign of hope that you gave is, I think, the one that generated the most controversy and conversation. So oh, yeah. I want you to talk about it and tell us what you meant by it. You called it the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Well, as I said very explicitly when I presented it, I said, this is not you know, a, a one-sided endorsement of, of everything Jordan Peterson has said. I said, I, I'm not really proposing it as, you know, boy, look at the content of Jordan Peterson's thought, and that's the sign of hope. My point was, the phenomenon of Peterson, namely that this rather mild-mannered uh, intellectual uh, professor who has become an online presence gets an enormous reaction when he talks about big issues, you know, whether they're psychological or more spiritual in, in, the, in the broad sense. But now he's talking about the Bible all over the country, getting tens of thousands in arenas, getting millions online Without bells and whistles, without all kinds of, you know, uh, hoopla, he's a kind of mild-mannered, soft-spoken professor talking about, I told the bishops, our book, talking about our, our Bible, and is getting a massive response. And, and my point very simply was, that's worth thinking about and is a kind of sign of hope. That if we think, oh, well, you know, the young people, especially, they'd never, you know, be interested in what we have to say about the Bible or, oh, come on, the church – you know, we can't get out there and, and talk about these ancient texts. Well, he is. He is. And he's getting a massive response. So that's what I was taking as a sign of hope that, um, gosh, there's an audience for this sort of thing. And we should uh, we should tap into that. And what particularly encourages me about about the traction he's been getting is that it's not just a general audience. It's this specific demographic yeah. of, say, 20 and 30 something unaffiliated young men. Yeah who were raised hearing from professors and parents and people online that the Bible is just totally full of silly yeah. myths and fairy tales. Or patriarchal, then, you know. Exactly. Stories. And here comes along someone taking it very seriously, has a very nuanced, multi-leveled reading of the scriptures, and they're they're latching onto it. They're fascinated by it. So I, I agree with you. Um is there any other sort of nuance that you want to add for the bishops or anything? I, I think it was a little disheartening for me to see a lot of commentators throw up headlines or articles saying Bishop Barron is in lockstep with Jordan Peterson or is an ally of Jordan Peterson yeah. or whatever. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. I, I mean, I'm used to it. You are too. Whenever you're on the internet, whenever you do this sort of thing, you're going to get that. And it's, of course, ridiculous and, of course, objectionable. But it's a game that people play largely as clickbait. They want to get attention. Uh, the kind of broad brush, you know, if there's if there's one little thing you don't like about Jordan Peterson, oh, this guy just mentioned his name. Therefore, he must subscribe to everything that I hate about this. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Uh, 
I think I clarified at one of the press conferences, someone brought this up. There was, you know, an interest online. And I said, look, I, my message was not, oh, go read Jordan Peterson, even though there are a lot of good things in Jordan Peterson. I mean, I, I think he's got a lot of good things to say. But that wasn't my point. My point was attend to the phenomenon of this guy getting such an audience. That should give us uh, hope. But I love, I read some of those things that I'm basing my apologetics on Jordan Peterson. I mean, give me a break. Jordan Peterson, I, I don't really know if he believes in God in the accepted sense. Uh, he reads the Bible from pretty much a, a psychodynamic Jungian standpoint. Therefore, I mean, ipso facto, I, I don't think that's an adequate approach. I'm basing my apologetics. I, I loved that I'm a fellow traveler of Jordan Peterson. I mean, using, of course, purposely charged language, you know, from the 1950s. So anyway, I'm used to it, but it's still regrettable. Here's the other thing, Brandon, that strikes me. Uh, this is all the devil's kind of stuff because here's this problem, this massive problem we have of, of the attrition of our own people, especially the young, right? We should all be together working on it. Okay, what's the devil's trick? His name is 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 the, the scatterer, right? And the accuser. Those are the, always the two moves of the devil. Oh, oh, let's distract attention from this problem. Let's get them arguing with each other. Let's get them fighting with each other. I love, for example, some people were saying like, why didn't he say the sex abuse scandal is the number one problem? Well, first of all, because the evidence doesn't suggest it, right? Now, for sake of argument, I'm perfectly fine to say, let's say it's the number one problem. No evidence, but let's say it. Great, great. Let's all get together and, and address it. And these other reasons are important too. Good, good. Why don't we all get together and fight this great thing together instead of bickering about who's reading the tea leaves properly? You know what I mean? That's why to me it was a prime example. We fall for it every time. It, the devil's not that interesting. You know what I'm saying? I mean, his methods aren't that uh, surprising, but yet we fall for it over and over again. Here's the Catholic Church trying to address a very significant problem. Oh, Let's fight with each other about who's got – forget it. Forget it. Fine. You're right. The sex abuse scandal is the number one reason. Okay, fine. Let's all fight together, you know, to solve this problem. So I think that's what goes on there. It's it's um, it's regrettable. Uh, it's also what you'd expect – I'll use Teddy Roosevelt's line of being in the arena. You know, if you're in the arena, let's say you're, you're out there making a, a public case – no matter what you say or don't say, people will attack you. Now, in the arena, people applaud for you. And I get lots of applause. Maybe I don't deserve a lot of it. But you, you get applause when you're in the arena. And you get people uh, throwing things at you in the arena. That's just par for the course, you know. But I, I think the deeper issue is it's, it's, such a, uh, it's such a diabolic sort of move that it distracts us from the work that we can and should be doing together. Let's close with this question. Uh, I know a lot of the bishops who listened to your presentation after it finished gave you a big applause. Um, at, you mentioned earlier there was like 45 minutes of bishops lining up to ask questions, to affirm what you said. There's a lot of energy around it. To me, the most surprising moment was when almost with uni unanimous consent, they said, we want you to give a bigger presentation about all this stuff to all the bishops in November. But to me, it, it raises this question. What would you like to see the church do to address the problem of the nuns? What needs to happen? Where should we address our energies? 
Well, again, it's it's multivalent. It's a, it's a complex issue, and there's a lot of different things to do. Speaking for myself, based on the evidence and based on a lot of my own experience, stop dumbing down the faith. Let's work much harder at presenting the faith in a way that younger people are going to find intellectually satisfying and compelling. Um, we've got to get a lot better at that, at least as good as someone like Jordan Peterson, who's able to engage younger people in a way they find intellectually uh, compelling. Again, whether you agree or disagree with every detail of Jordan Peterson, that's not my point. But um, uh, if you ask me, that should be a, a number one concern. Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. We love hearing from everyone who listens to this show. If you have a question that you'd like to ask Bishop Barron, just visit the website, askbishopbarron.com. You can record your question and send it in. Today, we have a question from Jim, and he's wondering, in light of all of this difficult news regarding the the, uh, sex abuse crisis, Mm. uh, different moral scandals, the problem of the nuns, how can we stay optimistic and positive? So here's Jim's question. This is Jim from New York. My question is how to preserve one's optimism and faith in view of all the challenges the church faces and the society faces, including abortion and its adherence, the rise of the unaffiliated, and the decline in the church's influence. Thank you. Yeah, good. Thank you. We all wrestle with that. Can I just suggest a simple image? Go back to the Gospels and... um, Jesus walking on the water and inviting Peter, right, who symbolizes the church, to come out of the boat and, and uh, join him walking on the water. And uh, I know it's maybe a cliche because every sermon's been about it, but as long as he has his eyes fixed on the Lord, he's able to walk on the water. And stormy water, of course, the Bible is evocative of of the tohu vabohu at the beginning of creation, the primal chaos. It's evocative of sin and death, etc. So it's the church able to walk on these great negativities, as long as our eyes are fixed on Christ. When Peter looks away from Jesus, famously, to the waves, he begins to sink. And so you've named, quite accurately, a lot of the waves that that, uh, surround us today. Church history, there have always been such waves, right? The church, that's why that story is so powerful, because Peter in the boat, that symbolizes the church, right? The bark of Peter. It's always been stormy water from first century until today always been stormy water. If you look at the waves, you're going to sink. You look at Christ, you'll walk on the water, meaning you'll you'll maintain your optimism and your sense of grace and of deep peace. Um, I don't know one saint who didn't deal with serious waves in his or her life, interior, exterior, institutional, cultural, whatever you want, persecution, martyrdom, right? But with our eyes fixed on Christ, we can walk on the water. Excellent. We mentioned Jordan Peterson a couple times here and the long-awaited conversation between Bishop Barron and Jordan Peterson, which they recorded a few months ago, has finally been made live. So if you want to listen to that nearly two-hour discussion, visit wordonfire.org slash Peterson. That's the website, wordonfire.org slash Peterson. You can listen to the whole discussion. And then below it, we also have a, a 30-minute dialogue Bishop Barron and I had kind of reflecting on that discussion, highlighting some of the key parts. So be sure to go to wordonfire.org slash Peterson. 
Finally, uh, a shout out to a couple of our great Word on Fire show patron supporters, Deborah Yip and Jingjing Shapley. I think that's how you say it. Thanks so much, guys, for supporting this show. It means a lot and it helps us to get this show to many more people. If you'd like to join them, visit the website wordonfireshow.com slash patron. And we really would appreciate your support. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week on the Word on Fire show. Yeah.